We pray that we can be witnesses of light to this dark world, that we can share the good news of Christmas, that God became man so that he could die for our sins. We thank you for the incarnation of the God-man. We thank you for Jesus' love toward us. And, Father, as we look at this letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus, I would pray that none of us would lose the first love that we had, that we wouldn't leave it, I should say, the first love that we had at that time when we first got saved, that we would be able to continue to have that fervor and that zeal for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if somehow or another... As the years have passed by, we have left that first love. Father, I pray that we would take the remedy that Christ offers to us in this letter, in this passage of the scripture, and that we would remember and that we would repent and that we would redo the things that we first did so that once again we can be on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would not remove our candlestick our light to the world, as he did with the church at Ephesus. So speak to us today through this letter, and Lord, just may that everything that is said here, both in word and in the song to follow, may it truly be for your son's glory and his alone, for we pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Well, the Ephesian Christians, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, were very heavily involved in laboring diligently and persistently for his name's sake. That's what we looked at in our lesson last week. Their testimony for him was at a high price, too, because we know, we talked about the fact that they lived in a very perverse, immoral, and dark city. The city of Ephesus was a very pagan city, and they lived there at a time when Emperor Domitian was reigning over the Roman Empire. And Domitian was the first emperor to take very seriously the persecution of Christians. But even under heavy persecution and opposition, the Lord Jesus was able to commend the Ephesian believers for their willingness to work for him with patience and with steadfastness and with determination not to faint in their well-doing. Furthermore, the church at Ephesus was commended uh, by the Lord for not bearing with them who did evil and for being spiritually discerning when it came to testing true from false apostles and other teachers who came their way with false teachings. And also he commended them for hating the deeds of who? Yes, the Nicolaitans, and that was a sect of men who were trying to rob the Christian people, the common people, of their liberties in Christ by their early attempts to divide the common people from uh, what we now call the clergy or the priesthood, you know, to lord it over the common people. Well, all in all, after hearing Christ's words of commendation to this largest and most prominent church in first century Asia Minor, we would probably conclude that this was about the most perfect and most privileged church that there possibly could be found anywhere. I mean, they sounded really ideal, didn't they? They sounded perfect. Well, although it is true that this was probably one of the most privileged churches to ever have existed, because who was its founder? The Apostle Paul himself, and then the first pastor was Timothy. Later it was pastored by the Apostle John, and it 
had such dynamic Christian co-laborers as Aquila and Priscilla and even Apollos uh, as church members. So it was a very, very privileged church. Yet the Lord Jesus had a different diagnosis for the church than the word perfect. He diagnosed the church with a very serious heart condition. And that condition and its remedy are what we are going to look at this morning in this second letter, second part of our study of the letter to the church of the Ephesians. Now we're going to continue the outline. I don't have it up here for you to look at as I usually do. But we're going to continue the outline from last week's study, Lesson 10, in which we first of all looked at some of the details about the actual city of Ephesus. And then, of course, we went on to discuss some of the details that we know about the actual church there at Ephesus. That was in Part 2. And in Part 3, we discussed the description that Jesus Christ gave of himself taken from John's vision over in Chapter 1. And then we began the Lord's declaration to the church, which is the bulk of the letter, his message to the church, as is found in verses 2 to 7. Now, there were six subdivisions of study under that last section, the declaration of Christ to the church. And last week, we only got as far as the first one of those six. We talked about the Lord's approval of the church. Therefore, today we're going to conclude our look at this fourth section in our outline by discussing the last five subdivisions. We're going to look at, first of all, the Lord's accusation. See, we've looked at his approval. Today we're going to look at his accusation to the church in verse 4. Then we're going to look at his advice to the church in verse 5a. No, excuse me. We're going to look at his admonition to the church in 5b. And then we're going to back up and look at his advice in 5a. Then following that, we're going to look at his appeal to the church in the first part of verse 7. And then finally, his award, his, his promised award to the overcomer in the last half of verse 7. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's begin by looking at his accusation. Well, up to the point of reading through verse 3 of their personal letter from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which, of course, was written by the pen of John, up to the point of reading through verse 3, the Ephesian Christians must have really been feeling pretty good. Uh, just think about this for a minute. They would have just heard from one of their church leaders or pe- perhaps from their pastor who would have just received this letter and then was probably reading it orally to the congregation, they would have heard these words. I know, and these were from the resurrected, glorified Christ himself, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Now that would have been beautiful music to the ears of these Ephesian Christians. The Son of God himself was commending them very strongly for all of their hard work, for their hard labor. Their, in other words, their work, their labor for him had not gone unnoticed by him. He knows all, doesn't he? As he himself reminded them 
by telling them, you know, his description of himself to them was that he held the seven stars in his right hand of power. And he walked in their midst, walked in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So he was saying that not one hour's toil for his name's sake had gone unobserved. He had seen it all by his omnipresent, omniscient eyes. When they had valiantly stood firm on apostolic doctrine by removing all the false teachers who came their way, he had been there. Jesus had been there. He had been watching, and he had been nodding with his approval. And when they patiently endured in the midst of persecution and all the suffering conditions that living in a pagan city would have entailed under the rule of a Christian-hating emperor, Jesus was there. He had been watching, and he had seen everything that they suffered for his name's sake. He was pleased by their boldness to call evil what it is and to deal with it and to keep it out of the church. So this letter up through verse 3 must have really been making the Ephesian Christians, as they were listening to it for the first time, very happy and very proud of their church and proud of their faithfulness in service and in doctrine. But then... Just when things were sounding really good, came the words of verse 4, where the Lord Jesus said to the Ephesian church, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Can't you imagine what a blow that must have been to these Christians, to this serving, steadfast, spiritually discerning, sacrificing church people? what this must have meant. They must have been wondering, oh no, what is he going to say now? You know, what is it we have done wrong? When you hear the word nevertheless, you know something's up. So they must have all been thinking at one time, what's he going to say that we've been doing wrong? And then came the words, because thou hast left thy first love. And I can imagine that at hearing those words read by whoever was reading them to them, that the majority of the Christians in that church would have hung their heads and privately thought, how did he know? This early apostolic church, you see, went off the track. Not in their doctrine. They were as sound as they could be in their doctrine. But they went off the track in their personal love relationship with Jesus Christ. And when your love for Christ cools off, your love for the brethren, your love for one another, just naturally also cools off. Their desire and their pursuit for doctrinal purity and their exclusion of all false teachers and other apostolic imposters and their exclusion of the Nicolaitans, all of these things for which they were commended. I mean, these were good things. Yet, nevertheless, these same things had, began, had begun to gradually build up within the church body an atmosphere of suspicion and mistrust. And this judgmental type of a climate although good and very good for keeping out heretics, 
is not too good, is it, to have within the body of Christ to the point where criticism and judgment begin to replace brotherly love. You know, if you're suspicious of everybody and what they're teaching, you get a judgmental type of atmosphere within the church body. An atmosphere of suspicion and mistrust is not the type of atmosphere in which brotherly love can be easily cultivated. There has to be, as always with everything in the Christian life, there has to be that fine balance between love and truth, doesn't there? A perfect church is a church which is both doctrinally pure and full of brotherly love because everyone in that church is deeply in love love with Jesus Christ. You see, when you start to fall out of love with Jesus Christ, you start to have problems with your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Now, it's interesting to compare, as we did somewhat last week, to compare this letter to the Ephesians with the one that Paul wrote, you know, the epistle to the Ephesians. In Paul's letter, and of course Paul's letter to the Ephesian church was written 30 years before Christ wrote this revelation letter to the Ephesians. In Paul's first letter, he spent the first three chapters of his epistle reminding the Ephesians about their wonderful position in Christ, saying to them in chapter 2, verse 6, that Christ had raised them where? He had raised them up. But sad to say, Jesus, 30 years later when he wrote this letter, had to say to them, if you look at verse 5, Thou art where? (laughs) Fallen. Jesus had said, I mean, Paul had said their position in Christ was raised up with Christ in the heavenlies. But as far as their love factor was concerned, now 30 years later, Jesus said, thou art fallen. They had fallen. You know, our enemy, Satan, has been around for a long, long time, hasn't he? A lot longer than you and I. And he has become quite an expert in knowing effective methods for destroying Christian work for the Lord. Biblical error and apostasy do not appear overnight in any church or in any individual. They are, first of all, preceded by other things. One weakness leads to another. One weakness yields to another, or it prepares the way for another. The departure from God's word is generally made by degrees rather than all at once. Satan, you see, was able to get his foot into the door of the Lord's church at Ephesus by getting the people to put their service for Christ. You see how subtle Satan is? He got the people to put their service for Christ ahead of of their love for his person. And that's a real subtle way to get into a church and start to destroy it. Satan knew that in this church, and in also, you remember, this church stands for the early stage of church history, the early stage of church development. He knew that he could not get the Christians of this church and of the apostolic church stage to deny their faith. He knew that he could not succeed 
in getting them to be indifferent toward God's word and towards doctrinal purity. I mean, they were, they were trained by Paul himself and by John. So he knew that he couldn't get in that way. But he was successful in shooting his fiery darts at the very heart of their spiritual lives by putting a wedge between them and their first love for the Lord Jesus. It's very possible, I'm sure you all know this, but it is very possible to serve the Lord for a number of wrong reasons. We may serve him for the praise of others, which is a common problem. We may serve him for the sake of having a spiritual reputation, you know, so that others will will say, oh, isn't she spiritual? She teaches a ladies Bible study. That is a wrong reason to serve the Lord Jesus. Or we may serve him for just the power, the prestige, the prominence that we would have. Or we may serve him out of a sense of duty. Well, you know, I need to. I need to do this. It's expected of me. We may do it just to appease our own conscience. We may do it because we're high-pressured by other Christians. You know, you need to be doing something. You need to teach that Sunday school class. So you go, okay, and you go in there and you're doing it for the wrong reason. However, we should be serving the Lord Jesus because of a heart full of overflowing deep love for him. We should be serving him because we love him so much for first having loved us and having saved us. We should serve him because we want to serve him just to show him how much we truly do love him and how much we appreciate the salvation that he has given to us. Notice here that Jesus was not saying to the Ephesians that they had no love for him. He wasn't saying that. He said that they had left their first love. This doesn't mean they didn't love him. They had just left their first love. We must remember that he had commended and appreciated their labor for for him, but he could not, in truth and in utmost concern for their spiritual welfare he and for their own testimony as well to the city, he could not overlook their neglect. You see, they didn't lose, that's why I corrected myself in my prayer this morning, and Dottie corrected me too. Um, they did not lose their first love, although that's what you usually hear people say when we talk about this letter, that they lost their first love. They really didn't lose it. If you'll look at the verse, it says uh, that they left it. To lose something indicates the element of non-purposeful intent. You know, you don't lose it on purpose. The Ephesians left their first love. That indicates a deliberate choice. They left it. I thought about the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who talked to Jesus and got so excited about uh, knowing that he was truly the Christ. What did she do with her water pot? She left. It says she left it. She didn't lose her water pot. She left it, a deliberate choice. She left it there because she knew she was going to come back. So there is a difference. Uh, To leave it indicates a deliberate choice. They left their first love for Christ for something else. So they deliberately left it for something else. They left their first love of Christ 
for their service to Christ. That's what they left. They got more involved in their service than in their love. Now, of course, we need to speak for just a moment on first love. Sometimes this first love is called foremost love. Just exactly what is meant by first love. Well, I don't think it takes us too much to figure it out. It is that initial, fervent, consuming, uninhibited, openly displayed love that one first has in a relationship with another. If you've ever, when I was sitting in church on Sunday morning, there was a young couple that came and sat in the pew right in front of me, and they had just gotten engaged, and they just couldn't keep away from each other. It's that kind of a love. It is that, uh, it is what we could probably best call honeymoon type love. That's the way I like to refer to it, as honeymoon love. It is heart devotion love that has no room for self. You're just thinking continually about the other person and not about yourself. It is, in other words, the kind of love that Christ himself had for, has for his church. Now, although mature married love deepens and it grows richer with time, doesn't it? It does. I mean, I love my husband more today than I did on our honeymoon. I really didn't even know him on our honeymoon. But although it, it, it does grow richer, it also, mature married love, should also hopefully never lose that element of honeymoon love, you know, the excitement and the wonder of those first married days together. We all know that when marriage partners begin to take each other for granted, then their life together becomes kind of routine, right? And the marriage sometimes can get in danger when that begins to happen. Well, the same is true with a Christian's love relationship with his Lord, the bridegroom. He is our bridegroom, right? We're the bride, he's the bridegroom. When we begin to take him for granted... And when we begin to take his love and his forgiveness for granted, then our service for him, you know, just kind of like when you cook breakfast, lunch, and dinner for your husband, our service becomes kind of mundane. It becomes kind of routine. The honeymoon is over. And the relationship on our end, not on his end, never, but on our end, the relationship is in danger. Of course, as Christians, as true born-again Christians, we're not in danger of losing our salvation. But we are in danger of slipping further and further away from him in our love relationship. He had already told the Ephesians in verse 5 that they were fallen. And he even warned them very seriously, we'll look at this in a little bit, that he might remove their candlestick. So it is no light matter. It is very serious. It's no light matter to lose first love for the the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's serious when he says he might remove your candlestick. And again, I'm not talking about salvation. We'll talk about this in a minute. It is only as we love Christ fervently that we can truly serve him faithfully. If we love him with any other kind of love than first love, then eventually we're going to find ourselves drifting. 
If you see people drifting out of your local church or drifting out of the Bible study, drifting away, you can almost guarantee that they are losing their first love for Christ. The Ephesian believers were maintaining, we saw this over and over again last week, they were busy, busy, busy maintaining their doctrinal purity, which is very important. I will never, ever put that down because it is so important to be doctrinally pure and sound. But they were neglecting their adoration. Labor is not a substitute for love. Labor should be the result of love. We must have both love and labor, labor and love, in not only our local church bodies, but within ourselves as well. Because remember, the church at Ephesus also represents Ephesian-type individuals. The Lord God is a jealous God, isn't he? Even the scripture tells us that. He is a jealous God, and he is jealous of our hearts. As any bridegroom would be jealous of his bride's heart, right? Yeah. So it's no small thing to the Lord Jesus to see our love toward him beginning to decline, beginning to slip away. It is very possible, and it happens all too often, for us to labor for Christ to the point where we have no time left for fellowship with Christ. I don't think there is probably anyone in Christian ministry who has not battled with this problem. I have heard many tapes these past two weeks on godly men who have taught on this letter, and every one of them openly confesses that this is a real problem in their own ministry, their own life. To be laboring so hard for Christ that you... Don't spend that time in fellowship with Christ. It's very easy, in other words, to slip right into Martha's shoes. Remember, she was so preoccupied with serving Christ that she missed being at his feet, listening to him, as Mary, her sister, was doing, learning from him and worshiping him. So Martha's service for Christ quickly became a burden for her. If you're not spending time with the Lord, then your service for the Lord begins to be a burden. And you say, well, why did he say his yoke was easy and his burden was light? It's because you're not spending time fellowshipping with him. Um, And so Martha's service, you see, became a burden. And what was the consequence of that? What happened to her relationship with her sister? She began to grumble and complain. When our burden becomes so great, first thing we turn on is our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we start complaining about this and about that and complaining about them and why aren't they doing their share of the load and all that sort of thing. When we replace love for Christ with service to Christ, as I said earlier, our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ is also going to be Affected. Spiritual pride oftentimes will arise from an Ephesian type of a church, which is a church or Ephesian type of Christian. Ephesian type of church is a church which is centered on activity, busy, 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 and on purity of doctrine, but at the price of a neglect of spiritual. 
fellowship with the Lord. And you'll see churches, if they're, especially if they're a legalistic type of church, they'll be very proud of their, of their doctrine. But you may not see much love there, even among the brethren, because they're all so suspicious of each other. And they're suspicious of anybody who comes into their fellowship. When we fail to spend time alone with Jesus, our work can soon develop into a matter of pride. No true servant of the Lord ever departed from his first love, his foremost love, without first having departed from his private devotional life with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I ask you, how much time do you spend daily with the Lord, with him alone? How much time do you spend in his word, that's how he talks to you, and how much time do you spend in prayer, that's how you speak to him. And is that the measure of your love for him? We have to remember that Christian activity alone, void of time with Christ, just Christian activity, robs us of our spiritual usefulness. Whereas fellowship with him, time spent with him, produces the right kind of of spiritual activity. You know, we have a lot of reasons today, especially in our day of apostasy, we have a lot of reasons for being upset about the things that are happening in Christendom, such as the ecumenical movement. I talked a little bit about the World Council of Churches and the National Council of Churches and the men and women that make up those organizations. We have every right to be upset about these things, about biblical illiteracy in this day and age, about um, apostasy and spiritual lethargy. Yet, all of these things really originated 1,900 years ago in the Ephesian stage of church history with the situation which was never, ever corrected. And that situation was a departure from, the, from love for the Lord Jesus himself. And this same danger threatens many of our Bible-teaching evangelical churches today. I'm just not talking about liberal churches. I am talking about the good evangelical Bible-teaching churches. Most of them would not, tolerate, would not even begin to tolerate doctrine that wasn't orthodox. And when I say orthodox, I mean, you know, in line with God's word. But they're, not, they're still not seeing many people getting saved. And their overall witness is not that strong in the community. I mean, how many good Bible-teaching evangelical churches in Sanford alone do we have? A lot. This is a blessed county for good churches. And yet what kind of impact is there on the community? with all those churches combined. Too often, the problem is the Ephesian problem all over again. They have left their first love. Many of the churches have left their first love. They're teaching pure doctrine. They're preaching the gospel message, but the love isn't there. And as it is with the church, so it is with the individual. We might well ask what Christ's all-searching, all-knowing eyes would see in our own hearts today. This is something that's been very convicting to me as I've been studying this. Very convicting. What would he see in our hearts today as he walks among us? 
Is there a decay in our first love? Has our heart begun to chill toward Christ and toward his precious word? Are we eager and are we earnest in our prayer devotions with him? Or does our heavenly bridegroom grieve because we have fallen out of honeymoon love with him? It's a serious question. Well, let's move on to his admonition. This is in the last half of verse 5. He says, I, I, well, let me just read the whole verse, but I'm going to talk about the last part. He says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. And here's the part I'm going to talk about. Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. The Lord here was admonishing or warning the Ephesian church that things must change or else they would no longer remain as a light. They would no longer remain as a testimony, not only to their little community, but to the whole world. Because what would he do? He would come quickly and he would remove their candlestick or their lampstand. In effect, he was saying, no love, no light. Remember that. No love, no light. Without love, we have no testimony. How did Christ say to his disciples that men would know that they were his disciples? By the love that they had one for another. And they can't have love one for another unless they have the love for him. Now, this doesn't mean that, as I said a little while ago, that the Ephesian Christians were going to lose their salvation. It meant that their corporate witness would become unusable. By the Lord. In other words, their witness would fade away. They would no longer be a church that Christ could use. He would remove their candlestick. A local church or a Christian without love for the Lord, really, if you think about it, is worse than useless to him. Because that church or that individual is actually giving a negative testimony. To the community. It'd be better not to have a testimony than to have a negative testimony. It gives a Christian or a church without love for the Lord is giving, or not without love, but without fervent, obvious love for the Lord, is giving the people, people out there the wrong impression of what Christianity is all about. Christianity is not just a busy, busy work system, void of, of love like all the other religions in the world. But Christianity is a love relationship, which was, of course, begun by God's grace, by his love. He loved us first. But it's a love relationship which demonstrates its love by its works. The love comes first. The works are a result of the, of the love. When we trust Christ as our Lord and Savior, he gives us, we know, the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And through him, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. This then should be the basis of all of our service for him, this love. The Holy Spirit will not be removed from the believer, but his power will no longer be evidenced by others in our lives or in the lives of our churches. 
if we are not serving out of a love for Christ himself. The spirit of the living God once given to us at the moment of salvation is given forever. However, we may lose the power to be light bearers for the Lord Jesus. The Lord was saying that unless the situation in the Ephesian church was corrected, he was going to come quickly and he was going to remove their lampstand so that they would no longer bear light to their community and to the world for him. This doesn't mean that he would come and remove their building necessarily, but that he would remove the church's ability to be a living light torch for him. In our own country, sad to say, if you drove across America, I mean, we live in the Bible Belt. Don't forget that. There's a lot of other parts of America that are not so blessed as we are. Many, many places have church buildings, but those church buildings have absolutely no spiritual light shining from them. What is the church like that you belong to? What is the church like, the local church like, that you belong to? Is it merely a nice, pretty building that people know is a church because it has a steeple on it? Or is it a place where Christ himself, if he was to attend your services, is it a place where he would feel at home and comfortable and welcomed and where he would feel deeply loved? Why are there so few people being saved in our churches today? Why is there so much sin among our members? Why is the divorce rate almost the same in the church as it is in the world? Why is there so much spiritual barrenness in the lives of most of our church members? Why are there so few? I mean, there's a lot when we look around, but compared to the population of Lee County, why are there so few of you here today interested in having a hunger for God's word? It is because in most churches today, their love for Jesus Christ is gone. Consequently, although the organized church continues, the Lord has removed his witness. He has removed the light. He has removed not his witness, its witness. They are no longer a torchlight. It may still continue a very, very active program. Lots of churches have all kinds of committees, and they, they're just as busy as they can be. But that church is not contributing to bringing men and women into the kingdom of God. And if Christ was to attend, he would not feel welcomed or at home in such a place. In fact, many people will not even realize. They'll just continue on as normal. They don't even realize that the witness and the power of the Holy Spirit has been removed from their church. They're so busy, they don't even realize it. But those who are spiritually alert to such important matters will realize when the Holy Spirit has sort of departed from their church, taken the lampstand away, and when nothing much is going on by way of spiritual evidence, people getting saved, people getting hungry for the word and growing in the word. And those who are spiritually alert to these things really should leave and join with another church where they see God working. 
Well, let's look at his advice. This is the first part of verse 5. It says, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works. Well, the good thing to know about the Lord's diagnosis of a serious heart condition either within a church or within an individual Christian, the good thing to know is that there is a prescription which has already been given by the great physician himself. And if properly taken, just like when you get medicine filled at the pharmacy, if this prescription is properly fulfilled, filled, and if it is properly taken, then restoration to good spiritual health is possible. Now, there are three words, and they all begin with the letter R, and this makes it very easy for us to remember what this prescription is. First of all, we see the word remember. Then we see the word repent. We also see the word do. It's talking about going back to first work, so we could say this is repeat or redo. So remember, repent, and repeat. Let's talk about the first word, remember. The first love of the Ephesians is pictured as a height from which they had fallen. He said, thou art fallen. So their first love is pictured as a height from which they have fallen. To look back, you know, into our past, to look back is not always good. You know, Paul said, you know, don't look back, but press forward. It's not always good. However, in this case, in this letter, it is good. The Lord was telling these people to reflect back, to look back, to remember the pit of paganism from which they had been drawn. Remember we talked about the awful worship of the false goddess Diana and all the other cults and all the other mythological gods and the emperor worship that was going on within this city. He was telling them to look back and remember that pit of paganism from which they had come. He was telling them to reflect upon the love which they once had for the one who had drawn them out of that awful dark pit. They were to relive the thrill of their first moments, their first days, their first months when they had come to know the true agape love, the saving love of the Lord Jesus Christ who had given his own life for them. They were to remember the joy in their hearts. Do you remember that joy? I'll never forget it as long as I live. I'll never forget it throughout eternity. I don't think God will take that memory away from us when we first save. I'll never forget the joy in my heart and in my soul and the peace that just flooded over me. He, that's what he wants them to remember. That first feeling that you had when you knew you, your eternal destiny was secure forever because of Christ. How you felt when you knew that all your sins were washed away. How that burden of guilt just rolled off of your shoulders. And how you knew you were no longer in bondage to Satan and to your own flesh and to to evil and to the world. What the Lord Jesus was essentially saying to the Ephesians and to anyone else who shares the same problem of a cooled off relationship with Christ is that what he was saying was that the key to the problem lies in a person's mind. How do you remember? With your mind. So the first thing to do in order to overcome 
any callousness or any coldness of heart which may be setting in or may have already set in is to remember and to reconsider the greatness of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Well, the second thing he said is to repent. And here the Lord was telling the Ephesians, the Ephesian believers, to make a conscious effort to make their relationship with Christ right again, to make it right, to purpose in their hearts to turn things around. Now, this second step in the prescription, back to first love, then is also a matter of the mind because repentance is the changing of one's mind. You must say, I have gotten into this situation. What she's talking about is exactly where I am. I have lost that first love. I need to change this. This is a matter of the mind. You say, I will change this. I am going to turn things around. Repentance is a willful change of direction. And, of course, it involves the mind. It involves a mental resolve which results in a positive leaving of sin. And to lose your first love is a sin. And it's a clinging to righteousness. So if this is you, resolve in your mind today. I'm going to remember how it was when I first got saved, and I'm going to repent. I'm going to change things. I'm going to... I'm going to Get things right. I want to get back to that relationship I had with him at the beginning. Now, notice that the Lord doesn't tell the Ephesians to wait. His, his prescription, his remedy isn't just wait until you have an emotional high. He isn't saying wait until you have some great experience, some kind of a mountaintop experience in order to rekindle that first love. He isn't telling them that at all. He didn't even tell them to feel sorry about their condition or to feel guilty about it. He simply said, repent. In other words, stop doing what you're doing right now and start doing the right thing. You know, too often Christians are like a little child who falls into a mud puddle. (laughs) Have you ever seen this? They fall into a mud puddle and what do they do? They sit there and they scream their head off and they cry and they wait for somebody to come and lift them out and clean them off. They just sit there in the mud. Mommy, mommy, mommy! (laughs) Until mommy comes. Well, Christ says, don't act like a child. Just get up. Resolve in your mind that you're going to stand up, you're going to wipe yourself off, and you're going to get going down the right track by doing the first works. And that leads us to the third part of his restoration prescription where he says do, or what I told you is repeat or redo. He told them that after remembering from whence they had fallen and repenting, they were to do the first works. In other words, they were to go back and do the things that they did when they had that first love for Christ. Do the things you did when you first got saved. To correct any departure from God, one, a person should go back to that point of departure. You know, look in your mind and say, where did I go? start drifting? And go back to that point of departure and do those acts of love which you did at that point or before that point. Do the acts of love that you did at first, even if the feelings aren't there. 
Okay, you know, Christianity is not a matter of feelings and emotions. It's a matter of the will. Do the things that you did at the beginning, even if your feelings and emotions are not there. Just do them anyway. And guess what will happen? The feelings will start to come. The love will start to come. They always say if you have someone you have a problem with, start to pray for them. And pretty soon, if you consistently pray for that person, you will develop a real love for that person. You won't have a problem with them anymore. That's what he's saying here. Just redo what you did at the beginning, and the love will start to come back. Now, what would some of these things involve, do you suppose? What did you do when you first got saved? I remember I was running around telling everybody about Jesus. I couldn't keep him to myself. As a matter of fact, I was kind of obnoxious about it. People couldn't wait to get away from me. But, uh, but that's what we do. We run around and we witness and we tell others about our newfound faith. Do we spend time in his word? Yes. We want to see what he says to us. Oh, man, I didn't know God put out a book. <laughs> and so you get into it and you want to read all he has to say. You spend a lot of time talking to him, thanking him, praising him, worshiping him. I was always, well, I still do. I play songs all the time in the car and I was always singing along and praising him and singing to him. And I just had such love for him. That honeymoon kind of love. Do those things. Even if your heart isn't in it, it will get in it as you keep doing them. And these are the kind of things which will definitely help a Christian to rise back to that first level of spirituality and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That first love. That honeymoon love. Well, the sad thing to learn here about this actual first century church at Ephesus is that the people did not take heed of the Lord's prescription. And what happened? He keeps his promises. He did come quickly, and he removed their candlestick. This letter was written in about 96 A.D. Well, in 262 A.D., the entire city of Ephesus was destroyed, including the church, at Ephesus. Happy to say the Temple of Diana was also destroyed, but sad to say the church was destroyed as well. And Ephesus never, ever again regained her former glory. And all that is left there today, I think some of you have been there, um, all that is left today is its ruins. You can go and see magnificent ruins, but that's all they are. Ruins on desolate hills. The city is uninhabited except for an occasional Muslim with a few sheep here and there. There are no Christians, no Christians in Ephesus, and there are not even any to be found near Ephesus. The light of the church at Ephesus was removed. What's the Lord's appeal? Well, let's look at verse 7, the first part. He said, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. You see here, although the church at Ephesus, at Ephesus as a whole, as a, a corporate body, was seen by the Lord in a fallen condition, yet what does he do? He makes an appeal to the individual. He says, he that hath an ear. That's to the individual. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Love is a personal matter. We are saved one by one. And we're 
restored one by one. There is no hint in this letter, no hint given that the entire Ephesian church would respond positively to this letter. We know from history that they didn't. But the hope was that there would be individuals within that church which would respond. The individual who had what? Ears to hear. And this is the first of seven times that the Lord makes this same appeal. He makes it in every one of these seven Revelation church letters. And as we've mentioned before, his use of the plural word churches, let, the Spirit, let them hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, that tells us that each letter was not just written for the benefit of that individual church, but that it was written for the benefit of all churches, the church universal. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about his appeal. Let's move on to the last part of verse 7, and this is his award. He says, uh, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The Lord's appeal to the overcomer demonstrates that the individual believer, the individual overcomer, can be true to the Lord no matter what the others around him may be doing. You can be an overcomer in an apostate church. He even talks to the overcomers in the church at Laodicea. First John um, chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 makes it clear who an overcomer is. If you want to turn there, you may. First John, just over two books. I know. You have to go past third and second John and then get to first John. But first John five, verses four and five tells us who an overcomer is. I've told you before that I thought about calling this Bible study the overcomers Bible study because I think that's such a good word for a Christian. An overcomer. We're more than conquerors, we're overcomers. Anyway, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 5, he makes it very clear who an overcomer is and what the method of overcoming is. He says, for whatsoever is born of God does what? Overcometh the world. Who's an overcomer? One who is born of God. Now, of course, they're speaking spiritually. A born-again Christian is one who overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. How do we overcome the world? By our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth, this is what our faith is in, who, he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So faith, belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is the key to overcoming this world. It is the key to overcoming this life. And that potential for overcoming the battle against sin and the battle against Satan and the battle against this world and the battle against our own flesh, the, the, key, the, the potential for overcoming that battle is placed into our hearts at the moment we place our trust, our faith, in who? In Jesus Christ. We have been removed automatically at the time of salvation. We have been removed from the kingdom of darkness and placed instantly into the kingdom of light. The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be an overcomer, or he is an overcomer. But his overcoming is totally not in himself, 
but it is in Jesus Christ. It is because Christ overcame the world. It is because Christ defeated Satan and because Christ defeated death and sin that we in him can be overcomers and we can stand as conquerors, more than conquerors, who don't need to be fearful of death or sin or the world or Satan or anything else that there might be, other people. The specific award, I call it award because it starts with an A and all my things have started with A, but it's really reward, I like that word better. But the award promised by the Lord to the overcomer in this verse is that he or she, this one who's an overcomer, and if you're a born-again Christian because you have placed your faith in Christ and his death on the cross for your sins, your reward or your award will be that you will be given by Christ himself fruit to eat from where? From the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Does that sound like a nice award? It surely does. When Adam fell, what happened? He lost paradise, didn't he? He lost it for all of us. And he was banned or barred from the garden. He couldn't go back into the garden. You know why? So that he couldn't go and eat from the tree of life. If he had stayed in the garden after he had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he had walked over to the tree of life and eaten of this special tree, then he would have lived forever in his sinful state. And that would not be good because God could not have redeemed him. He would, he would be immortal, but he would be immortal in a sinful, fallen state. So you see, it was God's mercy, it was God's grace which expelled him from paradise, from the garden. Now, in this letter to the Ephesians, Adam was the first man to fall. Here we have the first church to fall. Verse 5 said, thou art fallen, right? So we have the first church that fell, and it too, because of its fall, had lost the paradise of bliss, which they had known earlier when they had closely walked with God. You know, just as Adam walked closely with God in the cool of the garden day by day, well, the Ephesian church had walked closely with God in their early days, but now they had fallen. However, because Jesus Christ came to earth, because he lived a sinless life, because he died on the cross, and because he rose from the tomb, thus overcoming the world, the believer in him will be given access to eat from that tree of life in the new paradise of God. The Lord was promising, you see, he was promising the overcomer, the true Christian, not only a new paradise, which we will have in the new earth and the new heaven, but he was promising them eternal life here. So that's what you get if you are an overcomer. That is what you get if you are a true believer in Christ. You get to eat of the tree of life, which means you will live forever. You will have eternal life. Actually, if you have Jesus Christ, who is eternal life, you have eternal life right now. But you will get to also live in the, in the uh, new paradise. Adam, who symbolizes fallen man, 
was barred from the tree of life. But the overcomer, who is the risen man in Christ, will have free access to that tree eternally. So the Lord's advice and his appeal to the Ephesian believers had been to get back to their daily quiet time, get back to their daily devotional time in the cool of the day when they could be alone with God and walk with him in the garden. Because really there is no other way to restore a lost love for Jesus Christ and a lost life of experiencing the joy of your salvation, that joy of your initial salvation. There is no other way to have first love and not ever lose the joy of your salvation than to spend daily time with the Lord. It is tragically, tragically possible to have a saved soul but to have lost your love and to have lost the joy of your salvation. And I think all of us know far too many Christians where this has been true in their lives. So the important thing for you to ask yourself at the close of this first church letter is, first of all, are you an overcomer? Have you invited the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart as your personal Lord and Savior, understanding your own need, your own hopeless, helpless condition apart from him, understanding your own sinfulness and his atoning death and his shed blood on your behalf. Are you an overcomer? Have you been saved? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are in the family of God? If you don't know, please let's settle that today. Come see me and we'll talk about it. There's nothing I would rather do than to make sure that you know for sure that you are saved. If you have not been born again, that's the first thing you have to do. Because otherwise the Lord's prescription for a rekindled love for him will do you no good at all. You can't rekindle a love which has never really existed. Because apart from the indwelling of the Spirit of God, who you receive at the moment of your salvation, you cannot have that love for Christ shed abroad in your heart, much less have his power and his assistance to rekindle love. So examine yourselves and make certain, first of all, that you truly, truly are an overcomer. Then secondly, if you know you are an overcomer, if you know that you are a Christian, but your love for Christ has grown somewhat cool and you don't feel that, I don't like to say feel, you don't have that first love that you had at the time of your salvation and in those first months and years when you first got saved, then let's... Take his remedy, okay? Let's remember from whence we came. Remember what he did for us on the cross that he didn't have to do. Remember that pit of paganism, really, that we came from. I like to remember where I would be if it wasn't for him. Because I don't even know if I'd still be alive. Remember from whence you came. And then repent. A willful act of the mind. Repent from your coolness toward him. Repent of having allowed service for him to get in the way of love for him. And then, here's where the action comes in, redo all those things that you did when you were first saved. Especially spend time with him in his word and in prayer and in worship. And then your love will return.
Have ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to you through this very critical passage of God's Word. Let's pray.